people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, and welcome to Twelve Rules for What. This is a podcast about fascism, anti-fascism, and the far right. Uh, a few announcements before we begin. You can support us on Patreon. Uh, go to patreon.com slash 12 rules for what and subscribe for as little as $2 a month. You get access to slightly early episodes and the occasional book club that we run. Um, you can also support us on social media. We have a Twitter and an Instagram, so go hit us up there. And, uh, and you could also recommend us to your friends. Let them know about us. Word of mouth, yay. Okay, and now... Uh, on with the interview, we're talking to independent journalist Murray Kemp about his recent article about in Freedom News about the far right's influence on MMA, and also about Red Gyms, who he interviewed for for his article. Hi, Murray. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, mate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So this is going to be, like I said in the introduction, it's going to be like a follow-on episode to um, one we had previously about fascist fitness culture, fascist fitness clubs. Um, and part of that interview, or the, a small part of it, was based on an article you wrote for Freedom no- News called, let me get it, The Leftist Breaking the Right Chokehold on MMA. And I suppose it's a super interesting feature and we'll, we'll link it, in the, we'll link it in, the, in the description for the episode. Um, and then obviously there's a lot going on in that headline already, which, which, which I, I really like to get into and discuss a little bit. And of course, you know, in the title it says the right's chokehold on, on MMA, which, you know, kind of implies that the far right is like, you know, deeply embedded in, in mixed martial arts. What do you think is like a kind of, the, kind of the biggest signifier of that? Where do you see this kind of right wing influence in MMA? Um, it's a good question. I think, unfortunately, it's kind of everywhere. Like, um, like one of the main reasons I uh, wrote the piece was actually just kind of for myself because I've like trained for a few years and I've been interested in martial arts for you know a few years more than that and it does get a bit kind of depressing when you you know see a fighter in the UFC and you think oh they're so cool like they seem like a really good person and they're an amazing fighter I'm going to become a fan and start following them and then inevitably a few years down the line they're you know at a Bolsonaro rally or something like that and uh, yeah, I think um, I kind of wanted to explore a bit more of that and explore kind of like, yeah, why it was, uh, the extent of the right wing involvement in, in MMA and martial arts in general. And yeah, hopefully, yeah, as I kind of was the main focus of the, the article, explore, uh, explore the other side as well. So I think, um, yeah, where to start? I think, I guess probably when you're thinking about like what, the right wing influences probably the best place to start would be the UFC. Yeah. Like, I mean, the UFC is now kind of like a, you know, a household name. Um, I think it's probably safe to say that at least in the West, like most people have either watched or have been aware of an MMA, a UFC fight happening. Like, I mean, you know, like when Conor McGregor was fighting Khabib, it was it was literally like you know front page news in some places. Um, especially when he then went on to fight uh, Mayweather, it was literally you know Conor McGregor is now a kind of household name. And um, I guess the thing about the UFC um, and the th- and I guess the fact that it kind of dominates the entire like um, 
I guess, mainstream MMA scene. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, maybe their view of MMA is completely through the UFC. And UFC, you know, it's, itself, I guess, um, I guess the organisation itself doesn't tend to be, doesn't tend to take, like, overtly political stances. However, you know, you only have to look at the president, Dana White, to see, you know, oh, wait a minute, he has quite, like, a... I mean, he's been, uh, like, very close friends with Donald Trump for a while. Um, he's spoken, I think it was at, like, the Republican National Conference. I mean, it was a MAGA rally. I can't really remember. It was one or the other. Um, he basically spoke on behalf of his good friend, Donald Trump, saying how, you know, the guy was an absolute godsend for America. And um, I think he kind of, like, uh, drew a lot of parallels between fighting and Donald Trump and like positioning Donald as this kind of like big ass like prize fighter. Um and yeah, as in general, you know, quite strongly for Donald Trump. Um I guess like as far as my weird Dana White that's kind of I guess the extent to it. Like he doesn't I don't as far as I'm aware he's not kind of gone any further than that he's not exactly got any really strong political views himself like for example on the things that um you know trump's most infamous for you know like immigration the economy and things like that but i guess you know just the fact that he um like you know promotes trump you can't really promote one aspect of like trumpism without without kind of you know at least allowing the rest um and so yeah that's kind of i guess the main thing with the ufc uh and even then i mean also they like they quite the ufc is quite comfortable to have like you know people associated with ramzan kadarov the dictator in Chechnya, mm-hmm. and you know these kind of bolsonaro is like very pally with hasbullah and you know like you said he's also has links with ufc fighters like Ultimately, as much as they say that these fighters are like you know independent contractors, however much of bullshit that is, um, they could tell them you know today or tomorrow to not have these public links or not support far right um, figures worldwide, and yet they choose to, you know, they they allow them to do that. Yeah, exactly, and that's kind of um, yeah, I guess that's the extent of it. In that um, you know, again, yeah, the UFC isn't like you wouldn't really describe the UFC as. A racist or a fascist organization but when you've got Kadyrov sitting front row at one of the shows when you've got him you know pallying up to like the superstars like Hamza Chimaev um I think he was even yeah I think for a while he was quite um like quite pally with Khabib but I think I think for some reason they kind of fell out a bit I think he's I think uh Kadyrov said something about Khabib not uh, like flying the the Russian Federation flag strongly enough or something like that. And I think he's kind of moved on um, to Hamza as his kind of yeah like man in the UFC. Uh, I think yeah I've even seen pictures of Hasbulla with uh, Kadrov. Quite a strange combination, but yeah, I guess that just shows like how how deeply he yeah how deep, how deeply he's influenced MMA and the UFC. In the piece, you like kind of start off with quite an arresting. I suppose a uh, pit scene of of a UFC superstar called Jorge Masvidal 
at a Donald at a Trump rally with Donald Trump Jr. What it it seems so like what is his deal like why? Okay, maybe more a general question. Why do you think it's fighters in particular are taking these reactionary stances quite so publicly? Yeah, I guess the the why is such a kind of big can of worms because yeah, I guess there's a lot of ways you can kind of analyze it. Um, on and on the piece, I spoke to uh, Peter Irving, who's a kind of like uh, UK legendary MMA fighter. Uh, head coach at it's the Newcastle Fight Centre, and yeah, he's yeah, like was at the top of his game when he was a fighter, and um, it's now it's now cornering people at like the highest levels of the sport, and yeah, he had a lot of really interesting takes on it. Um, I think he kind of noticed that there is like you know for you don't really see it as much in the UFC because there is no like uniform, but um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and most kind of traditional martial arts have uh, quite rigid like rankings um, you know they have their uniforms their belt system and you know there's the kind of the absolute units at the top and then the hierarchy kind of goes slowly down until you get to the white belts at the bottom of the pecking order um, so it's quite yeah milita- quite like a militaristic sport um, probably more so than most um, another thing Irvin kind of spoke about was that it was like yeah quite an individualistic sport like um i mean in my experience like uh, the kind of team aspect of mma is something that people don't really see that much like you only see these two people standing across from each other in the octagon it's one individual versus one individual obviously there you know there is a bit more to it than that like there is you know huge teams behind these people and if they don't have a big team you know they're not going to be a good fighter but um yeah, I think even then, like there is quite hard to escape the kind of um like individual nature of the sport. Like, you know, people I guess see themselves as, you know, the prize fighter and anyone else um who's in their division is just like another kind of another obstacle to beat on their way to the top. So I guess yeah, there's that kind of individualistic uh, aspect which I guess is quite you know popular with right wingers who like to see themselves as the kind of dominant uh, alpha males of the world. Um, other thing like what one thing I've kind of always thought as well and is that it's quite like a like inherently political sport. Like if you you know doesn't matter how much uh, badminton training or like football training you do, that's not really gonna it's not going to have the same impact on like, you know, your ability to be like a, you know, a political actor in the world as MMA is, you know, as much as, um, as much as it's like a sport that I think most people on the left love, like it is, um, yeah, at the root of it is kind of a sport about, you know, dominating your opponent. Um, and I think that's something that I guess the aspiring right winger who has, you know, the image of themselves as them, you know, marching through communities with jack boots on. I guess um, being able to kind of handle handle yourself if you come up against any opposition is very important for that. Yeah, and we we covered a lot of that in in the previous episode of talking specifically about patriotic patriotic alternative, which we've spoken about a lot on this program before. 
Um, it's interesting that you make the point that you 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 think MMA is like a like inherently political as an activity, um, or at least more so than say badminton. And so I wondered um, how. I mean, I assume the answer is yes, because you wrote this article about leftists breaking the chokehold on the far right, but what is the use of anti-fascists, or I suppose the left more generally, um, training this stuff, maybe founding their own clubs, or at least um, getting involved in their local martial arts club, general martial arts club? Yeah, I guess, um, I guess, yeah, there's a kind of lot of ways that that could look, be looked at. Definitely a lot of benefits. I think... Um, when you kind of mention to people like anti-fascists, MMA, I think, I guess the first image that pops to people's mind is kind of, you know, the hard nut militants that I think those kind of, the combination of those words probably suggests. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, there's not really any kind of sugar coat in it. Obviously that is quite an important thing. Like, you know, anti, being an anti-fascist activist is dangerous. Um, you know, in most countries, I think in other countries, definitely, um, it can be, you know, a matter of life and death. So yeah, being able to like defend yourself, whether that's, you know, on demos or, uh, you know, I think, I don't know, even like, uh, when you read about the, um, the old kind of national front struggles in like the East end, it was even just like, you know, if you're out, uh, like handing out flyers or handing out newspapers, there's like a very high chance someone's going to try come and try and bash you up. So I think, um, yeah, from that, uh, I guess like as a movement, anti-fascists kind of, because they've positioned themselves uh, so strongly kind of against such, against such a kind of uh, like, you know, hateful and violent uh, ideology, there is the, you know, the inevitable, uh, situation where it will, yeah, like someone from that ideology is going to try and take a pop at you. Um, I think, yeah, I think that was obviously that's the kind of the main idea, but I think, I guess most people uh, wouldn't really think any further beyond that. Um, but that is, yeah, I think that's where the kind of what I kind of have experienced from. Uh, all the interviews I did from all the different gyms I interviewed and kind of all the research I did um, was that although that is like a big aspect like the kind of you know the self-defense aspect like there is you know so so much more to it than that like there's just the kind of obvious like you know building fitness um, building confidence that comes from training uh, there's a good team building aspect um, I think, I think, yeah, probably one of the most interesting things from the people that I interviewed was this uh, idea of like a stepping stone. Um, like the, I think, you know, basically if you're, most of these um, left-wing MMA gyms, they don't really have a whole lot of capacity. Like they're not running numerous sessions a day. They're not even running like daily sessions. Um, and if you want to get, you know, if you do want to get really good at, well, basically anything, you can't really be training it just once a week. But um, I think, yeah, what a lot, what I got from a lot of uh, the gyms was that uh, they were kind of trying to offer 
like a stepping stone to get people on the left um, or people that were kind of excluded from like the regular MMA, MMA gyms to kind of build up the confidence and to, yeah, to be able to kind of actually go along to these regular gyms and, and you know, get on all right. So I think, yeah, I mean, uh, there is obviously like the stereotype of MMA gyms being, you know, really aggressive, like formidable places where, you know, you walk in the door and you're immediately fending off punches and dodging high kicks. <laughs> um, which I think, yeah, isn't, isn't actually true at all. As well, at least not in the gyms that I've been to. Like, I think most gyms are actually like very kind of controlled environments and uh, good coaches are, are really good at kind of easing in beginners. But um, there is still the, you know, the kind of aspect, for example, by, you know, by far the majority of people that are trained in MMA are men. So, you know, if you, if you are a woman or you're trans, like if you, you know, if you're going into like a really, really male dominated space where, you know, there's a lot of like quite, uh, you know, I guess like aggressive, aggressive people, it can obviously be quite intimidating. Um, so being able to obviously uh, like build up the skills and build up the kind of resilience to be able to actually go in these gyms and but to be able to have the confidence to go in these gyms um i think was also like a really a big aspect of the gyms that i spoke to so you interviewed a few few gyms for the piece i think the the named ones are mutiny athletic and left hook which is in brighton i think is that the only ones that that were named um i think yeah i think those were the ones that were named yeah um what kind of what was your what was the commonalities between them? You've already kind of said that they were trying to get people more active, but um, do you think this kind of community aspect is like how how do you think they balance the kind of community aspect of the gyms with the actual training? You know, because it's it's all well and good, I suppose, to build connections and and have a team building kind of atmosphere, but ultimately the point is to get better at a, a specific set of skills. Um, so. Do you think they were, how do you think they were kind of navigating those difficulties? Um, I think, yeah, it's obviously, it's obviously a difficult one because, yeah, I mean, you know, it is, there is like a really nice community feel behind it, but yeah, like you're saying, like there is also the kind of desire to actually want to, you know, build a good, a good team, build a good fight team. Um... I guess, yeah, I think this is maybe, I guess, a situation where they kind of, uh, I guess, like, ide- ideologies kind of need to be set aside a tiny bit, is that um, there was, you know, I think most of the gyms did have a bit of a hierarchy. Like, you know, they had they had coaches, um, they had, you know, the coaches were the ones that kind of planned the lesson structure, Um and yeah, it wasn't just like, you know, 10 people come in the room, you pick a different coach each day. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, to be, to, for me, like, that's not, that's not like a, a really like big kind of like move away from any kind of leftist ideas. Like, I don't, I don't think it's like, a, I don't think it's like in a way like non leftist to like respect that other people, you know, do have expertise in these areas and that 
you know, if you want to actually learn to be good at something, you, you should listen to them. Um, so I think, yeah, that was the kind of, I guess, one of the um, main ways that it seemed that the, you know, the fight, the, the fight teams were kind of structured as like, you know, actual fight teams and not just as collectives. Um, other than that, yeah, I think one of the really interesting ones, uh, you know what, I've actually, actually don't have the article to, just from me, uh, in front of me, but uh, I think it was, yeah, either Mutiny or um, Left Hook, but I think they, um, they did things like food bank collections and uh, like solidarity funds for, you know, I think it was like solidarity funds for, you know, other kind of uh, like other activist groups like hunt stabs and things like that. I think, I think yeah, it was left hook, yeah. Okay, cool, yeah. And um, yeah, I guess that was like another way where, you know, as well as kind of building like a strong. You know, like a strong fight team and getting better at what they were training, um, they could also kind of yeah, like make it, you know, make it a leftist German more than just name, and um, yes, yeah, it all sounded really interesting and yeah, I guess it's like each of them kind of had like the they seemed to have like a different way of doing things. They weren't all just like carbon copies of each other, um, but yeah, there was this there was like a few kind of common themes running through them like you said like a community building um yeah community building kind of like living out uh leftist ideals through the training like like what they were you know like what left we're doing with the solidarity funds and things like that um and yeah at its core trying to actually teach people how to defend themselves and trying to get people better at the sports so if um, I came to you and said I wanted to start a kind of a red gym, an anti-fascist gym, martial arts club, in my city, what would be the kind of, I suppose, three or four basic things you would tell me to do or get or, you know, acquire before I got started and before I started putting the text around saying we're going to do this thing? Uh, well, probably first I would say speak to someone that's actually done it because I've actually never, I've never started one myself, so... Um, yeah, I'd probably say I would probably point you in the direction of people that have done it before to kind of give you a bit of a better idea about that. Um, what else would you? What else would you have to do? I think. Um, I guess it's like yeah, seeing like what kind of appetite there is for it. Like um, you know, if there was like a a big kind of leftist scene in there that you were in, I think it would be a lot easier to kind of. Uh, you know, to get people involved, because I think, yeah, at, at the core of these things, it's like, I guess they are primarily about bringing together leftists that are into combat sports, or at least getting people, or at least um, getting people on the left involved in combat sports. So, if there's a big enough pool of people that are in your area willing to do that, then yeah, definitely go for it. Um, you know, I think, yeah, that's obviously like. I think most of the gyms that I uh, that I interviewed were in kind of bigger cities, but I think yeah, they all they all seem to be pretty well attended. Like you see photos of them all training, and like yeah, I mean some of them I think I've heard I think I've heard of some of them getting up to like thirty people per session, which is like mm-hmm. yeah, it's getting towards like the level of like an actual like regular professional gym, 
So yeah, it's absolutely it's amazing that obviously there's that many people in those areas that are interested in it. But even yeah, even if it's just like one or two people, like it's a start, you know. Things can you can obviously build on that snowball. Things will snowball, and hopefully you kind of get something going. Um, other things, a space, it's usually important. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, most of the most of the gyms I interviewed seem to have yeah been lucky enough to actually find a roof to train under. I think uh, I've definitely heard of a few of them that started out just yeah a few mates in the park um which is also yeah completely fine but maybe if you're if some some of them were in the north and well, i'm from scotland so it definitely wouldn't work there It'd be slipping everywhere um <laughs> so yeah so yeah i guess people to train with um a space equipment it's kind of another big thing um yeah, the gyms kind of had, they also kind of said different things of how they got the equipment. Some of them, I think, found it on like Gumtree and stuff. Some of them just borrowed it. I think like, some of them just stole some of it. And then, uh, yeah, they all kind of managed to, I guess, pile up enough to be, yeah, to form like a decent gym. And yeah, the last thing, probably just, yeah, some level of expertise. Like, um, I think yeah with these things there is obviously you kind of want them to be like completely like beginner accessible um i think yeah i read i read an interview with uh i think it was by uh i can't remember i think it was one of the 161 crews interviewed peter irving and he yeah he was kind of saying that like you do need to have like some kind of like you know experienced coaching because you know these are these are the kind of sports where if you if you're if you're just learning from youtube you know as much as youtube is pretty it's actually pretty handy for looking at tutorials it doesn't quite cut it like you do need to have uh, some kind of you know not not even necessarily like professional experience but just i guess some people that kind of know their shit um and yeah if you've got all those things why not just go for it nice um so i suppose taking a little bit of a wider lens outside the uk when i think of like kind of the i suppose far right in fitness or far right in martial arts it, it seems to be much more established in europe in central europe and eastern europe especially um have you got much um uh you know, what is, I suppose, what's the difference between how the far right um, operates in these kind of martial arts settings in Europe compared to the UK? Like, to me, it kind of almost seems like, uh, you know, like the, the Western, the kind of, you know, as further west you get, there is obviously out, you know, outright fascists, outright Nazis. But um, one of the things that I think, the right are I don't know if you'd say they were good at it or they're just deluded enough here, but I think they they like to kind of uh, pretend they aren't like odd, you know, they aren't like outright fascists or outright neo Nazis. You know, they uh, instead of the I think you know 
I guess, you know, there was in the UK, like the National Front and stuff, um, Combat 18, like they all were quite outright neo-Nazis, but then there's also, uh, you know, like the BMP, the EDL, we're not racist, we just, we just love England. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think it does seem to be like the further east you go, there is almost, um, there, is, there does seem to be like a kind of more outright, like, you know, in your face neo-Nazism. Like um, one of the kind of examples that I kind of touched on in the piece was the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. And, you know, they're like a proper, like, you know, like their, their logo is even just like a kind of like swastika that's had like a few of the angles changed. Like it's kind of you know they're not really they're not really uh, beating around the bush like they are just like outright neo Nazis, um, and they had yeah I mean they had like a I think they used to have like a social center in Kiev, which had like right in the middle of it like an MMA ring like surrounded by a bar, and yeah I think that was kind of like I guess yeah like a lot of right where uh, people in the far right kind of envisage themselves as these kind of like you know big hard nuts but i guess yeah like there it was kind of like we're actually like trying to like live out this image um and i think yeah i mean it was actually like operating in center of kiev for i think it was like a few years and then it went bust for some strange reason i think they like ran a like a big uh, MMA promotion and like nobody turned up or something like that and they got into loads of debt and it closed down um, oh, but, yeah. <laughs> oh no what a shame but then uh, yeah I think uh, yeah like that that kind of thing like that kind of like in your face like we're not you know we're not kind of not hiding like we are just like outright neo-Nazis there was like um, there was a fighter in Russia his name was uh, Ivan Strelnikov and if you if you search up photos of this guy, like it's bizarre. Like um he was yeah, like a proper proper neo Nazi, like covered in like neo Nazi tattoos, MMA uh, pro MMA fighter. And yeah, like bizarrely there's like I think he fought for one one promotion which actually did tell him, like, nah, you, you can't have those tattoos here. Um, which is quite I think it's it's actually quite common in like the West. Like I think um, that's a, yeah, another thing like Peter Irvin was talking about was how like the big the big promotions in the West just like if you have a Nazi tattoo like they just won't have you they'll just flat out won't employ you but this guy yeah. um, Ivan Shelnikov fought for this promotion and they said they told him like you actually need to cover up those tattoos and it is the most bizarre photo ever because you know you know that like um like the athletic tape that physios use, you kind of see it quite a lot. Like yeah. really bright, like yeah, like bright coloured tape, like taping up people's arms. There's actually a photo of him, like with a huge piece of that, like around his stomach, covering up one of his tattoos. And then, like if you search, like what's under the tattoo, that's like a huge letters, like "Born to Be White." And, yeah. Oh, no. So like, you know, that's it. Like, obviously, it doesn't really take even like that much effort to kind of do a bit of digging and find out what is under that and I think yeah I think that does show that in I guess in the east uh, you know like 
the you know in, in Eastern Europe and in Russia, um, these things are a lot more kind of in your face. Obviously, yeah, that's like um, like not really. It's definitely not the fault of like your average um, your average Eastern European person. Like the you know, and these countries also have like really like amazingly like uh, like well organized anti fascist movements. But unfortunately, yeah, like the power structures in these countries are very much like shifted towards the right, where that kind of thing is a lot more like acceptable. Yeah, I think we could just quickly say about Azov that you know they started out definitely as like a neo-Nazi outfit, and they had this gym, like you said. Uh, I think the situation, it's quite hard to tell what they're kind of, now it's been incorporated into the Ukrainian army, like I mean, you know, think of that what you will, because you know, they still accepted them into, a, they made the institutionalised the battalion, but also there must have been some kind of, it seems like there has been some kind of like moderation of their, of that, of their politics from the, you know, the outright neo-Nazism of their origins. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, especially with the war in Ukraine, it's kind of, it's made things a lot more complicated as well because there is like a lot of, um, yeah, like there's now like a lot of like anti-fascist fighters who are fighting alongside the Azov Battalion. And yeah, a lot of kind of, I don't know, I don't really, don't really want to call them arm, armchair commentators, but I guess you kind of could. A lot of people are, you know, telling these anti-fascists like, you know, you're not anti-fascists, like, you're fighting in the same army as um, as the Azov Battalion, but you know the rea- the reality of it is, of course, like you know th- those those groups still do not have any love between each other. If when you know whenever the war finishes, they'll go back to being against each other. They're not even you know you wouldn't even really consider them allies. It's just like the main the main enemy right now is Russia, um, and I think. Uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of it's yeah, it's really strange like how much the Azov Battalion is now, like you said, like completely kind of incorporated into into like yeah the states the state structure of Ukraine, and I mean you know who knows like what what that will make of in the future like who knows like how you know maybe they've moderated their views for now to kind of get a bigger platform. They can obviously be using that platform as leverage, and yeah, that's kind of a big thing to watch, I guess. Okay, so uh, I suppose bringing it back around to martial arts, um, a guy who blew up recently and then kind of had a big downfall is this guy Andrew Tate, um, who got really famous for speaking a lot of misogyny on on TikTok and having his like followers spread it around and it seemed like he was also running some kind of scam affiliate marketing university as well um and it is quite part of his I suppose character part of his um backstory was he was this kickboxer who uh you know had fights and was was kind of teaching men how to uh you know how to stand up for themselves and how to make themselves better and, and all this kind of stuff and we have seen some UFC fighters uh, either meet with him or engage with him in some way, particularly uh, Algerine Sterling and Leon Edwards, who are both champions in the UFC right now. What do you make of this guy? Like he, he seems like from one, some of the whatever the fights I've seen, he's, he wasn't particularly good, and yet he's managed to kind of 
spin that kind of history into a, a, a kind of a masculine kind of virile persona um yeah yeah i takes a really strange one like to me i don't know to me he's he's kind of like i don't know like jordan peterson's pet dog like i think he's uh i think he's definitely tapped into um a certain kind of strain of Okay, I don't know. If, I mean, I, I think it's kind of like being packaged stuff as like self help, but is in reality just kind of right wing ideology. And I think that the one of the main things about this ideology is um, the idea that men are becoming somehow like you know demasculated, um, and that yeah, like the left wing want men to kind of stop being men. I think um, it's something that like. Peterson kind of talks about quite a lot. Like he's all, yeah. I think he's definitely like pretty anti, you know, anti-trans, uh, anti-feminist. Um, but in a way that obviously he doesn't like. Unlike Tate, he doesn't like outright call for, you know, a, what, what's the kind of things that Tate says like women shouldn't leave the house or something like that. Like um, I think he's yeah. It's kind of a Going subculture, twinned up with like the incels, that um, yeah, men need to be men need to suddenly become like uber masculine because the left are trying to you know take away their balls or something like that. And uh, I think Tate, yeah, is like, I guess yeah, probably like the kind of figurehead of that. Like he, yeah, is like very misogynistic. Um, very kind of, yeah, like, I guess, in a way, as far as I'm aware, he's not like, I think, what was, I think, am I right in saying that he's, I think the the kind of politicians that he said he admires are people like Putin. I'm not entirely sure. If, yeah, yeah, I mean, he said a lot of stuff, but he, he has he has said that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so like, you kind of, yeah, like, maybe if it wasn't Putin, it was kind of like, he, he I guess, idealises the kind of, the big strong men of politics and I think in a kind of yeah the annoying thing about Tate is that um, you know like Jordan Peterson for example talks quite a lot about you know being like a big alpha male being a monster but in reality like he's not really like an imposing person he you know he's not like He's definitely, as far as I'm aware, is not good at not uh, good at fighting at all. Um, and yeah, he kind of, I guess, he looks a little bit ill, which is probably because he only eats uh, steak and salt. But um, I think, yeah, like the annoying thing about Tate is that, yeah, like he can't actually fight. But interesting, yeah. I mean, whenever I've, I've actually watched like a few of his fights, and like you were saying, like he doesn't actually seem that good when you watch him fight. But he has, yeah, he has like won quite a lot. And he was like, I don't know, he won, I think, some kind of world championship. Um, so I guess, like, a lot of kind of young, insecure guys that are kind of struggling to come to terms with this kind of, uh, like, movement away from toxic masculinity, then see Tate as their kind of poster boy of someone just saying, nah, like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. Um, yeah, in terms of, like, the influence he has, um, I think he's well. I think he was banned from 
most social medias. I guess Elon Musk is probably going to reinstate him to Twitter, so who knows, like he could be making a big return. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's a strange one. Like, it's kind of like, he does seem to be the ultimate like reactionary in that it does seem like most of the uh, viewpoints he has are just kind of taking leftist viewpoints for, you know, like women's rights or LGBTQ rights and kind of, yeah, just turning them on their head and, uh, yeah, completely kind of reacting against them. So, as yeah, I mean, as like a kind of political actor, I'm not sure how you would class him. Like, he's not... He is kind of like, I guess, uh, he does have, you know, these, these strong views, but he's not... You know, he's not, I guess, your classic like political actor. He's not like he's, uh, you know, he, I know he. What's the what's the group of guys he calls this team? He calls them like his top G's or something. It's all these like top G's, yeah, yeah. Like I've seen videos. It's always like fourteen year old guys like chasing after him, like top G. Uh, but I think yeah, he's, he's not exactly. Um, he's not exactly trying to like take control of the streets or anything like that. And I guess yeah, I mean. He has right-wing views, but it's kind of been turned into this like self-help idea. So, yeah, I mean, personally, I hope we see a lot less of him. I really hope he just disappears into obscurity, but definitely, yeah, I'd say, like, one to watch. I think with him and, like, other guys like Peterson, like you said, they, they also, they're not projecting kind of particular versions of masculinity. They're also projecting a particular kind of success in our kind of neoliberal world. Like, big part of Tate's marketing is, you know, I'm a multimillionaire, I make this amount of money a month, I have these many cars, I have these many girlfriends, I have, you know, this this kind of massive house in Romania. Um, similarly with Gordon Peterson, you know, follow my 12 rules and you too can be successful in this world. And it's, it, I think it is also tied up in this kind of need to be a certain kind of successful in in you know kind of late capitalism as well. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I think it's what's that? What uh, one of John Peterson's twelve rules? I think it's um, <clears throat> uh, like before you criticize society, make sure your room's tidy. And I think yeah, uh, yeah what what he kind of seem what him and Tate seem to be kind of saying is that. Um, in this era where I think, yeah, I, think, I, I guess in, in this kind of like society nowadays, like the definitions of success are becoming more and more difficult to achieve. Like, as you know, the average person is not going to become the next Elon Musk with what, 200 billion pounds. Um, the kind of like gender roles are also being like rightfully challenged. Like, it's now no longer like the man's role to be you know the big warrior and the big protector of his family um and i think yeah people i guess kind of insecure guys who still want that for themselves but are finding it more and more you know unattainable whether that's through like pressure from the left or just in general like it's just you know like the monopoly capitalism is making it so so much harder to actually become a successful businessman unless you have stacks of cash waiting behind you from the start. Um, 
so I guess yeah, like what um, what Peterson was saying that you know don't criticize society, just tidy tidy room first. I think that's a big part of what uh, like Tate's kind of ideology as well is that you know it's saying it's all. I mean, essentially, it's saying like don't be a left winger, don't you know don't criticize, don't unionize, don't organize. Just work, work really hard, and you too can have a big guy bear on like me. And um, yeah, I guess, thankfully, I don't know. I guess you know. I think his kind of infamy has obviously put him to the top. I think, thankfully, even though he's like very popular, I think the actual people that would describe themselves as Andrew Tate top G's is thankfully quite low. Um, but it is, yeah. He is, I guess, probably right now the number one figure in the world. Well, maybe not, but I think yeah, definitely one of the biggest figures in the in the Western world, where people yeah, like a lot of kind of the more kind of insecure, toxic male figures would view him as the the successful top G. Yeah. So, to finish the interview, I thought I'd ask, since I know you've uh, trained many different, or at least a few, several different uh, martial arts in your lifetime, uh, if I, as an anti-fascist, was wanted to get into a martial art or wanted to train, where would you recommend I go? Um, would it be a wrestling thing? Would it be a striking thing? What would you recommend? Uh, no, no, it can, no, no, this no, can no, also no. be a completely... Your, your personal bias or your personal preference too. That's no problem. Yeah. Personally, yeah, I've always mostly been a grappler. Um, I think, to be honest, yeah, like, the I guess the answer to that is just like whatever one you, you enjoy the most or whatever one's available. Like, um, I don't know. I, me- I remember I used to know, uh, I used to know this guy who was a, really good judo fighter he'd like represented cyprus at the commonwealth games like he's absolutely amazing and Damn. i think um i remember i asked him like you know what was your gym like back home i bet he was like i bet he was full of you know like <laughs> proper like hard fighters i bet he was like a really top level gym he was like nah it was just me and one other guy like uh <laughs> i was absolutely amazed by that but i guess yeah it kind of goes to show that like a lot of times like you know, obviously, like, I live in like big city now. There's a lot of a lot of things available, but if you are you know living in like more rural areas or even just outside of big cities, to be honest, like as long, I would say as long as you're training something that involves some aspect of like competitive sparring, then that's like a good starting place. Uh, obviously, if you want to then you know take things further you need to seek out like a proper MMA gym um yeah I'm quite biased towards grappling I kind of yeah I used to do judo and now I do PJJ it's very fun kind of like a lot of people describe it as like uh you know physical physical chess so I think it's like yeah the thinking person's martial art apparently um but yeah also striking is really fun as well um if you're if you're lucky enough to have an MMA gym nearby, you can obviously do a bit of everything. Yeah, I like to do a bit of grappling and a bit of striking as well. Um, I think yeah, if you enjoy it, just keep at it. I think that's the 
kind of main the main crux of things is that yeah if you want to if you want to actually get good at these things that you need to train regularly and you need to train yeah very consistently so if you're miserable at training i know muhammad ali said that he hated every minute of training but yeah if you do unless you're trying to train as hard as him then yeah make sure you just enjoy it yeah not all of us are blessed with the natural abilities of of muhammad ali so i wish that we were okay thank you very much this has been really interesting interview murray uh, have you got anything to plug before you finish or I guess people read that article that you wrote and that's it yeah that's it I've kind of not got a whole lot to plug um, got my Instagram my Twitter page uh, both are just oh, yeah. uh, MBK journalism I have like two followers on Twitter I only started using it so if it does if it doesn't uh, disappear please follow me uh, you picked I'll... a really good time to <laughs> set up an account eh <laughs> exactly and uh yeah, I'm kind of most of my writings I do these days is for Freedom Press, so you can yeah obviously give them a follow. I'm ridiculously inconsistent though. I think I average like one post every one or two months, but I've got a few things in the pipeline. So yeah, give me a follow and uh, I'll try not to leave you disappointed. Nice. All right. Bye bye everybody. Thank you. Thanks. See ya.